our secret sauce was always having rich information about the user commercial behavior on, let's say, e-commerce websites, showing them uh, relevant ads on publisher websites, right? So we were able to personalize ads based on our knowledge of the user historical e-commerce behavior. Recommenders are actually playing an economic role in a marketplace, right? So you have sellers and buyers, and then you have uh, recommender systems that are somewhere in between. At the moment, if you use a proxy metric and you optimize for it, soon enough, that metric will diverge from your true objective, right? What is recommendation doing actually to the user decision process that affects the user decision process? And uh, how can we model that? And uh, we quickly realized that there is quite a deep connection with the economic vision of user decision process or economic activity. Why can't we not turn the user preference model into a generative model? Like, why can't we actually build something from which we can sample, actually, from which we can sample likely products that the user will buy? You could have an end-to-end full application of a personalization, right? So you could have a user vector that goes into a generative model that then generates a mesh that goes to the printer that produces the object. So we could go all the way there. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Rexperts, a recommender systems experts. Today, I have the great pleasure to meet and talk to Flavian Fasile, who is a principal scientist at Criteo AI Lab since almost 10 years now. He has previously worked at Twitter and Yahoo. He was a co-author of Record Gym. In addition, Flavian was also a co-organizer of the Real Workshop for the past five years since 2018. He contributed many papers to the Recommender Systems Conference, but also to the AAAI, UMAP, KDD. And he was also co-authoring a couple of papers with one guest in one of our former episodes, which was Olivier Yunen. So I'm very happy to have you on board. Hello, Flavian. Hi, Marcel. Thanks for having me today. I guess uh, I, I mentioned a couple of points about yourself, but I guess there is uh, much more to uh, know for, for our guests. So can you introduce yourself? Uh, sure, gladly. So um, as you mentioned, I've been active in advertising ML um, field for quite a while now. Uh, I started by interning at Yahoo Labs in the advertising group and then decided to stay. And I, I, I stayed in uh, four years there. Then I moved to Twitter advertising, doing also advertising applications uh, there, and then uh, moved to what was uh, at that point in time uh, quite a small startup, Criteo, and stayed uh, here for uh, for the last nine plus years and became quite interested in recommendation in the last five or so years. Uh, before that, I did uh, many other things like content classification for uh, advertising, graph-based targeting, and so on. So yeah, but in the last five years, I've been uh, really focusing five years is more than five years now it's maybe like six plus years uh, i've been um, focused on recommendation and deep learning models for recommendation and try to kind of draw attention uh, for the rex community on some aspects that you know as practitioner i discovered to be quite important so as a result you know we had all this crisis of offline to online metrics uh, alignment and uh, we created a reveal workshop and then the record gym simulator where we try to kind of make the difference between organic and bandic signal um, wrote quite a bunch of papers on this, had a bunch of tutorials, actually also uh, summer schools at Rexis and also at WWW, WebConf now, KDD, 
uh, where we try to kind of educate more and more uh, about the need to think about the bandy signal and pose recommendation mm -hmm. as a reward optimizing system. Mm -hmm. So far from taking the standard look at recommender systems that was quite popular in the zero years where we had that Netflix challenge. Right. I mean, there has lots of stuff going on from them. Nowadays, you might say, okay, you don't do rating prediction anymore. Now you do ranking prediction. But I mean, the field has developed much further, as you mentioned. So nowadays, approaches from bandits and reinforcement learning have become quite widespread to address some of the major issues, like you mentioned, the offline and online gap that we frequently face in recommender systems when we are about to decide which of the recommender models we want to take to the online stage. When we think it performs good offline, it's not always a guarantee that it will also do so in an online environment. Yeah, you just mentioned that uh, it was about five or six years ago mm. when you started focusing on recommender systems. Was there something specific that piqued your interest or where was the point where you decided to turn your focus more to the Rexos space? I was always interested in recommendation. I feel it's one of the kind of key applications for machine learning. Beyond search, I feel like this is one of the things that ML does the best and affects the most, uh, you know, daily life. Six years or so, I had an opportunity to, to work on an internal project on uh, improving recommendation. And I also had a very good visiting intern, Alexi Kono, uh, who was interested in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in uh, language models and creating kind of word embeddings and so on and so forth. So. Uh, these two things together created a very nice project, uh, which resulted in uh, the MetaProtovec paper, which was quite well received and uh, a lot of people have uh, have leveraged it in the past. So I think that was the, the kind of starting point for me getting interested in, in recommendation and getting serious about recommendation. Yeah, and as we can all see, you have been pretty active in the space. People who use the more sequential manner of recommender models might be well aware of Prot2Vec. You are one of the authors for the meta Prot2Vec paper that uh, took into account the site information uh, in addition, but also you worked on causal embeddings for recommendations. I guess it was 2018 when it became best right. paper at Rexus. And nowadays, you are still very, very productive. I mean, there are a couple of papers we will be talking about later on, on economic recommendations and generative recommendations. So very, very interesting stuff. But before going into the depth of these papers, what I always found a bit interesting is actually Criteo. So... I mean, in the Rexus community, Criteo is well known for its great parties at Rexus, but also for publishing papers uh, like crazy at different conferences. So not only Rexus. So you are doing really great research there. And I mean, it's not only papers. Uh, you mentioned it. Uh, it's also uh, open source contributions. For example, the record gym, which was kind of the jumpstart for simulators and recommender systems. I mean, we then afterwards saw Google with Rexim. There was the open bandit pipeline. And uh, yeah, I guess one of the largest data sets stems from right here. So the one terabyte uh, click prediction data set that is still very widely used and uh, really uh, something I would say very useful for, for the community of practitioners and, and researchers. But somehow the starting point for this episode for me was um, we are always talking about personalized recommendations 
And we or the people who, who know Criteo a bit from the conferences know that Criteo is working in advertising. And then there are these people that somehow associate recommendations with, or are you the people who are showing me the, the advertisements? So can you shed some more light into what is Criteo's business case? What are you doing? And then we can maybe dive into a bit more the topic of how is personalization helping there? Sure, uh, gladly. Uh, so Criteo started as a retargeting company. So mostly, so it, it, uh, we are acting as a B2B company where we, we take advertisers uh, need to show ads and publishers need to, to monetize their audiences and kind of put them together, right? And our secret sauce was always having rich information about the user commercial behavior on, let's say, e-commerce websites, showing them uh, relevant ads on publisher websites, right? So we were able mm -hmm. to personalize ads based on our knowledge of the user historical e-commerce behavior. Uh, so the first one was retargeting, which mostly means bringing the user to e-commerce website that he or she already visited, as opposed to acquisition, which is more about bringing a new user to the website, right? If I can just interrupt there, it's called retargeting, yes. it's not targeting. Exactly. So what is the re and targeting? Is it about that bringing back? The retargeting is the fact that you re-engage the user ah, okay. uh, from the point of view of the e-commerce website is about re-engaging the user, right? So mm -hmm. uh, kind of a reminder, hey, you forgot to finish this transaction. Are you still interested in, you know, you added this to basket a couple of days ago. Are you still interested in uh, in finishing this transaction, for example? Okay. And, and, and this basically means that you are conditioned on users that have already interacted with a certain e-commerce exactly. e platform before. Exactly. So no, it, it's not about... Here is shop A and there is shop B and you have previously engaged with shop A and I'm now retargeting you. So trying to bring you back. So this is what you do. It's not about there's shop B, which I haven't interacted yet with and you want to bring them to shop B. Yeah. So this was the original, uh, like the, the main product that Crypto uh, kind of was known for and uh, we became quickly market leaders. Uh, but then we branched out into kind of all the conversion funnel for the user behavior. So we're now going for... Uh, upper funnel, so for earlier stages in the shopping funnel, and there uh, we have other products. So we have a contextual offering when we don't know anything about the user, for example. So we just use the kind of information on the page, or we have the acquisition offering where we know things about the user from a different website. And it's exactly how you said, we, we bring uh, users from shop A to shop B. Uh, so we do have now these offerings, but traditionally we didn't. Okay. And to get these two terms straight that you just mentioned, so advertisers and publishers, maybe to illustrate it with an example. So for example, if I'm an electronics retailer, then I'm basically the advertiser. In this, uh, in this story, yes. And for example, a news platform might be the publisher because this is basically the platform which will be the place at which the targeting takes place. So where basically consumers meet sellers. Exactly, exactly. So the publishers will be basically the display opportunities. Where can we show ads? Okay, okay. So for some people, it might be a self-evident question to answer, but uh, let's just start from the very beginning. So where and how does personalization help there? So in retargeting, the personalization is quite straightforward because you are implicitly using the user history, right? You either show uh, a product that the user already saw in the past and uh, he didn't finish, uh, you know, uh, buying it or a product similar to something, uh, to a historical product. So personalization mm -hmm. is implicit in retargeting because that's the whole point. This allows you to really stand out from normal uh, brand advertising campaigns where you have a very general, uh, very, uh, you know, abstract kind of call to, to action or image 
so our ads will always contain basically a, a certain product and, and that product would be likely something that is relevant to you from from uh, from your history as opposed to a campaign that will just show you know the name of the brand or the name of the store and maybe the best sellers right so it will be a very mm -hmm. uh, very different in personalization from the two from the two banners okay and the way that you i mean you are a profit oriented company you also want to earn money in order to pay your people properly and so on and so forth so where is it where you are earn the money with? So is it that you basically take a premium from the retailer and then part of it will also be paid forward to the publisher? Where where is it actually, what is the difference where yeah. you are making the money with? Of course. So the business model is quite simple. We, in some sense, we take quite a lot of the risk. So we prepay for all the publisher traffic. So we pay the publishers, we acquire mm -hmm. the publisher traffic on our own. And then we charge the retailer, the, um, the advertiser, a percent of the sales. So we guarantee mm -hmm. sales, Okay. what we call post-click sales. So if any of the users that clicked on our ads end up buying something on the retail website in the next K days, and I think that's kind of mm -hmm. tunable, uh, then we would bill uh, proportionally to that the, the client. Of course, the client will set his willingness to pay, how much he's willing to pay for every sale. And then, you know, he would then give us that uh, that portion for every sale that we drove to the website. So then okay. what is nice for in this business, business model is that unlike other types of business models, a lot of the budgets are uncapped because you know that you want more sales. So then a lot of the campaigns don't have a preset budget because it, they're always on, right? Uh, the more sales we can drive, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, which for optimization purposes is quite nice because you don't have to think about budgets moving and other things. <laughs> yeah, there's a point. <laughs> cool, okay. And um, now you actually work for the Criteo AI Lab. So mm -hmm. some part of the organization that focuses on research, but I bet that definitely that research is also somehow directed by the business. So can you illustrate to our listeners a bit more how that collaboration between the business and the research units or parts of the organization works and how you are also bringing research ideas, insights into production to help the business? Uh, sure. Um, so yeah, I think the Criteria Lab, uh, which was founded in 2018, is quite different than other um, research labs in the industry because we are not fully separated from the R&D department. And we try to to stay relevant mm -hmm. to, because we are you know we're we're big but we're still not big enough to you know to have an R and uh, a research group that is fully uh, paper focused. We we try the, to keep the focus of the research group quite aligned with with the business, right? So mm -hmm. what, what in practice it means that uh, even if we have a, quite a lot of theoretical work in, in the group, that there is a continuum where there are other researchers that take this uh, this uh, quite theoretical research and try to apply it to real projects. Uh, for example, all our work on, let's say, uh, adversarial robustness and uh, uh, counterfactual inference led to, let's say, better offline estimators for, say, a click uplift uh, for a record model. Um, so we try to keep the really applied work and uh, the theoretical work in, in somehow in a, in a sync. But I would say it's uh, there is no clear guideline how to do that. See, I would say it's quite an art. We we just got lucky that we have a, a pretty nice ecosystem of 30 plus researchers and 100, I would say, in an NGML that managed to work together and, uh, you know, nice things happen in this group. So it's basically a close collaboration between research and business there. But on the other hand, uh, I would somehow assume that you have quite large 
freedom because i mean all those efforts that ended up in proper of policy estimation i guess they haven't come overnight uh, right. so they were i guess the product of many contributions also many iterations on research which sometimes takes takes quite a long time so for me this somehow feels like there is not a push like this is a problem and you need to come up with a solution within the next one or two months. And if you don't, we will basically cut that research mm -hmm. direction and right. turn our focus to something else. So how do you organize this to make really the case for we want to follow this because we have some points of data of research that we can assume bring us into the right direction, but we just need to focus on it longer. And then at the end, it's going to pay off. It is a very good question. The way it works, ideally it works is that uh, th there is a proportion of the research group that is always in some sense embedded in the engineering applied teams. It's almost, let's say, kind of a product maturity cycle. So as the ideas get get more mature, uh, the, the researchers behind them get embedded into the applied teams and try to life test them to see if they work. And then mm -hmm. as they finish, they come up with other ideas and then they retreat a bit, maybe for a year or two, in the research group and work fully theoretically and then come back again in a couple of years. But there is always somebody that is, you know, closer to production and somebody that's just stepping away from production mm -hmm. to think about more theoretical things. So there is always this kind of flux of people coming in and out of okay. basically uh, joint projects with, with engineering. Uh, and that turns out to, to work quite well. I'm thinking about a sponge. So the sponge is a researcher and you throw the sponge into the business and it's getting uh, yeah, soaked up with problems and with, with business problems and then to be squeezed out, the sponge goes exactly. back into the research or more researchy exactly. area and it's getting to get squeezed out. And what comes out of it is somehow research insights that are discussed and so on and then brought back there, to the there, business. Yeah, exactly. There's this cross-pollination that's happening. Okay. Uh, but of course, as I said, it's a, uh, it's a very sensitive and fragile thing. So it needs to be continuously, you know, encouraged and, uh, you know, taken care of because it's quite hard to, to design for it. So it's really, uh, mm -hmm. you need to see when you have it going on and kind of do more of it. But uh, yeah, and I think it's a lot to do with also how you hire for the profiles you mm -hmm. hire and also uh, how you incentivize these things, right? Uh, you don't want to incentivize too much uh, staying fully too close to production, but also staying uh, fully theoretical. So there's always a balance to to keep. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. Yeah, with regards to that kind of organization and the Criteria AI Lab, I mean, one of the fundamental stuff that uh, you folks started with or was rather optimizing for clicks, which of course is nowadays heavily criticized. Mm -hmm. Can you guide us through the process of improving personalized advertising and where you are nowadays with your efforts? Very good question. I, I just want to um, kind of mention from the beginning that at the moment when we started actually publishing on kind of clicked optimized recommendation, uh, the business itself was already on conversion optimization, but it's always, and even uh, when you have a simulator, it's always easier to design everything for clicks. So we always knew that clicks were just an intermediary step, but uh, we were not ready from the beginning to work on conversions, though the business itself was on conversion. So we had clicks, but I think we moved away from clicks as being like the main business model in like 2016 or something like that. So while Criteo in general was uh, was optimizing for conversions, our research uh, was just assuming that clicks were kind of the bendy signal. 
because it was so much simpler to work with clicks than sales. What was the reason for that? I mean, was it just because it was a much denser signal or was data coverage just much better provided for clicks instead of conversions? Well, I think it's a combination of multiple factors, right? There is the, um, the sparsity issue, of course, as you said, basically you have more clicks than sales. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's say that in a simulator, you could, of course, uh, have as many as you want or you could wait as much as you want. So for EchoGym, for example, that shouldn't have been a problem. But you have then the problem of, of course, the delayed reward aspect, right? And the credit attribution issue, right? So what is nice with a click is that you know exactly to what action to attribute it, right? Mm -hmm. The click, it's immediate and it's on this action or on this banner, right? You know that you showed a certain banner or a certain item in a banner and the user clicked. So you know that that's a positive signal. But what if you think that the conversion is the only positive signal? Now you show 10 banners and then the user buys. Then you are in the full uh, RL situation, right? You need to start doing full RL from the beginning. You cannot do bandit approaches first. We wanted mm -hmm. to do a simpler problem first and then kind of crawl before we walk. So we started with clicks. And that basically informed our decisions for, you know, record gym and a bunch of other papers and all our off-policy estimators were all designed for immediate rewards uh, because that already was hard enough. Yeah, yeah. But I would assume it was also beneficial to, to, to start with it. So it was not useless at all, even though it was not aligned to the goal of Criteo itself, optimizing for conversions. But was it actually a good proxy or was it just the right proxies to start with before jumping into conversions? Or what was that point where you said, okay, it's still useful to check clicks, but it's not the best? Well, it was encouraging to see that you can move clicks and then now you have something offline that can predict what will happen online with mm -hmm. finally with a real metric, like with a real A-B test metric. So that was very nice to see that, you know, you have offline estimators that are aligned with production. Uh, but quickly after, you know, uh, and I think there is a name for this. Um, is it the good heart? No, it's maybe good heart. Uh, basically, at the moment, if you use a proxy metric and you optimize for it, soon enough, that metric will diverge from your true objective, right? Mm -hmm. And that's easy to, to see. So immediately after, you know, we, you start optimizing for clicks, you manage to roll out something that's positive in clicks and sales. But soon enough, uh, the next A-B test will be only positive in clicks and uh, <laughs> negative in sales. Yeah. And then you you are back to square one, which is uh, you need to start learning something for conversions. And uh, that's where we kind of arrived, let's say, two years ago, where we decided to start really thinking about conversions. Okay, I see. I was provided with a very good and comprehensive presentation for a lecture that you gave in Stockholm uh, just uh, some while ago. And in there, I could find that end-to-end -end product of things you can optimize for, which really goes from CTR over conversion optimization into optimizing for the utility of a consumer, of a final buyer, but also taking a look into multiple stakeholders. Can you illustrate a bit when things started to change in your focus from clicks to conversions and what were kind of the model or research changes that you performed there? Uh, sure. So it was around 2020, uh, so kind of two years ago that I, I felt that we are ready or we, we should start looking at conversions. Mm -hmm. Then that forced us to a bit rethink the, the, the series of methods that uh, we could apply, right? So. Uh, we, re we quickly realized that uh, kind of the old of policy work that we did, well, very nice, 
uh, it was almost impossible to use for conversions, right? Uh, basically, mm-hmm. the variance and the combinatorial explosion of actions and combinations of actions was just too much to have any hope to do kind of off-policy RL. So we realized that we have kind of two directions that we can pursue. Either we can do on-policy RL, uh, so we can kind of learn by doing or can kind of, you know, do things directly in uh, live in A-B test to collect data and to try new things directly or to actually get more opinionated on the reward model, right? So in normal bandit set- setting, the reward just is something external, a stochastic reward, and you don't make more assumptions about uh, where is this coming from. But mm-hmm. if you think about it, the reward actually is the product of an implicit user model, right? You know that there is something happening uh, inside the user uh, kind of mind uh, that makes him in the end convert or not convert, right? So mm-hmm. we, we started thinking more about, you know, the causal aspects of what is recommendation doing actually to the user decision process that affects the user decision process mm-hmm. and uh, how can we model that and uh, we quickly realized that there is quite a deep connection with the economic vision of user decision process for economic activity which is you know that the user is a rational agent that is trying to maximize its own utility uh, this is when we kind of opened a new research direction where we, we started kind of, I, I call it econ-reco, mm-hmm. uh, where we started kind of bringing ideas from economics to design a better recommender system. I find it quite fascinating. I, I find it has quite an, a lot of nice theoretical properties. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the performance aspects are still yet in progress. We're still trying to create a model that will work on real data. For now, it works well on simulated data, but the theoretical aspects are quite promising. Okay, so you mentioned the new research direction called econ records so for i mm-hmm. assume economic recommendations right um so with lots of considerations stemming from economic theory from econometrics i would also assume can you walk us through the fundamentals of this new research directions and also give us kind of feeling what are its main differences to classical recommenders uh, sure. So the, the building block for this approach is really the rational agent model, the, the belief that the user will act rationally when when choosing to buy a, a product and um, that uh, the user is able to compute the preferences of the utility over a set of items. And that those preferences, given nothing else changes, they won't change either, right? So that means that the user being aware of, let's say, uh, of a set of five uh, options it will be able to compute its upside for each one of the five options and then uh, subtract the price and it will choose one of the, you know, the, the one that maximizes the upside. So mm-hmm. it, it, it gives us a very clear framework on basically how to predict what the user will do, right? So we'll, we'll know that if the user buys something, it's because this, yeah, this item is the utility maximizing one. So this is, uh, you know, this is in the deterministic case, but most of the time what people do in econometrics and what we ended up doing is to add, uh, you know, kind of use the gamble trick, kind of use some some gamble noise to turn the arc max into a soft max. Mm-hmm. So then you have that basically the user policy is now an exponential policy, a soft max over the items that the user is aware of or knows about. Mm-hmm. So what the end, the end story looks like is that when you observe the user, uh, you know, the user organic activity on an e-commerce website, what you're really seeing is the user trying to acquire information about the items that are available for him to buy, uh, trying to compute their utility. And then when the user runs out of time, uh, basically chooses to buy the best one or none of them, if none of them are good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and parse the, uh, the, the user history this way, then you can try to learn basically the user preference model or the user utility model. 
uh, especially if you have prices. What I, what I find interesting about this is that you also take into account the price. So this feels somehow a bit new to me. So you're modeling the user's preference towards not all the items, but the items that are somehow in the awareness set of the user or something like that. And you're also right. taking into account the price. So how, how do you take into account the price in that model? If you think that uh, the user, it's really a utility maximizer, mm -hmm. the, the way you compute the utility is by looking at the unknown upside, which is in some sense the internal satisfaction uh, that we believe can be turned into a, a monetary sum, and then mm -hmm. the downside, which is you know the price being paid, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, then as almost like any economic agent, the user will try to maximize its profit margin, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. it will try to pay the, the least. Uh, for the maximum satisfaction, right? And he will choose the item that gives uh, him the, the best delta for between the price and the upside, uh, which is also known as willingness to pay. So uh, of course, then if you actually have access to user past behavior on items with prices, then you can start actually computing what is the possible upside that the user had for the winning product, right? Uh, by just kind of making differences between different products and seeing that this user uh, preferred uh, product A at price 20 over product B at price 10 you know that product A had to have at least, uh, you know, utility 20, actually to even bigger than that. And then you, you can start narrowing down on kind of the utility model that the user has over the item feature. So you basically have a, have a user utility where you say the user's utility is equal the user's willingness to pay minus the price. So that surplus, which could also be negative, but I would assume if that becomes the negative, then, um, and if there's no positive one in the awareness set, the user would just simply decide not to buy, assuming exactly. the user is rational. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is always somehow a problem in, in economic theories where that whole field of behavioral economics, I guess, also started a bit with, but at some point you need to start and make uh, some some assumptions. So, and, and how are you modeling that willingness to pay? I mean, so just for our listeners, um, there was a paper that you just published as of this year. Um, it's called Welfare Optimized Recommender Systems. And in this paper, I guess you are trying to model that uh, willingness to pay. Can you can I illustrate right. that a bit more? So uh, sure. Uh, so it turns out that uh, it becomes quite a similar model to what we have right now for kind of next item prediction, for example, right? So in normal next item prediction for classical kind of reco, right, you would have a softmax over all possible products that the user could see next. Mm -hmm. Here, what we have, it's kind of a modified softmax where instead of kind of predicting over the range of the whole catalog, what you do is you assume that the user timelines somehow finish with a conversion or decision, basically one or zero. And then you have actually one softmax per time episode or per session mm -hmm. uh, where you have a softmax uh, over all the products that the user saw up until the last uh, timestamp. And then uh, try to predict if any of them was bought or uh, you have a kind of an N plus one, which is a no buy option. Which basically means the problem there is that the uh, dimension of the softmax is always different from session to session. Right. So from the point of view of coding, it's, it's not as fun because you have this kind of basically varying range for every, every user session. But indeed, the softmax now ranges over the history as opposed to over a fixed set, which is the, the catalog. The assumption that we make is that a user cannot buy something that he does not inspect first, right? And in most uh, real shopping sessions, that is true because you have to first at least see the item to add it to cart and then to buy it, right? So then you will actually have that kind of 
item view event somewhere in the past. So in reality, this holds quite uh, quite nicely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only, let's say, simplifying assumption, and this is why we're not yet saying that this applies to real data, is that we're assuming that all these items are somehow in competition with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So it works very well, for example, for items that are, you know, kind of uh, substitutes of each other, but doesn't work well for complementary items. So mm -hmm. if you are trying to buy a pair of shoes and you're only looking at shoes, then this holds. But if you're looking at shoes and socks, uh, then the softmax should not be over the socks and the shoes in the same time, right? Okay. Uh, and then you have to have maybe a mixture of softmaxes or a smarter way to basically cluster the, the objects in your history. So somehow you're already illustrating the future work that we are going to expect based on this paper. But uh, I, I want to go back to the title because I'm actually coming also a bit from an economics background and their welfare is a very important term. Um, yeah. And what you claim in the paper is that you are able to optimize for the overall welfare, which not only considers the user, but also the sellers. Can you explain a bit more what that welfare consists of and how you're doing that with the model? Uh, sure. You, you touched upon uh, on the other really important piece that uh, this approach gives us, which is it, it sheds a light on basically all the agents in the marketplace, right? And it shows that actually recommenders are actually playing an economic role in a marketplace, right? So you have sellers and buyers, and then you have uh, recommender systems that are somewhere in between. And then the, the natural question that we, we should ask is actually on whose behalf are recommender uh, systems acting, right? Are they acting on behalf of the user or on behalf of the seller, right? And are they representing the incentives of the buyer or of the seller? This makes quite a lot of difference because then the objective of the recommendation system actually turns out to be different, right? In a recommender system that is actually buyer side, the recommender will be fully incentive compatible, of course, with the buyer, with the user, and mm -hmm. it will try to maximize its utility. If it's on the seller side, it will try to do something in between, right? It will try to still get the user to buy. So it will offer something that is uh, appealing to the user, but it will try to kind of upsell, right? It will try to find you items that uh, give a good margin to the seller, right? Yeah. Um, so the ranking functions will turn out to be not exactly the same. And what we are proposing actually in the paper is that actually either of the, the, the two of the objectives are in some sense myopic and that actually an objective that kind of tries to blend the user and the seller uh, interest is the best for the kind of the marketplace uh, long-term healthiness. And this is basically the raw uh, amount of, uh, of, let's say, satisfaction or utility being uh, created in the market. And that is the welfare, right? So that, that takes into account both the the user happiness and the seller margin. And it tries to optimize the sum of the two. Okay. And by seller margin, what we are talking about here in a more simplified setting is basically the price. So we don't take into right. account costs yet. And then, for example, say, okay, the seller itself has, of course, some costs associated with the uh, with selling products, uh, which means that the seller generally would be more interested in optimizing for its profit margin, which we can't model in that setting or maybe not yet. Um, yeah. So what we say is the utility or the aggregated utility of sellers is, let's say, for all sellers and for all conversions, the sum of the prices that the sellers make. And for the buyers, it's basically the aggregated difference between their willingness to pay and the prices associated with their conversions. And then what right. the model does is that it optimizes both things. So basically the aggregated sum of, of, of both are aggregated utilities. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So what I was actually thinking about is uh, prices are pretty natural to products and e-commerce. 
Uh, what I was thinking about that welfare optimization might not only be applicable in retail industry and advertising. So I was actually also thinking about media or entertainment because we could somehow take into account the time that we listen to a song or that we watch a movie also as a price. Yeah, if you would say, okay, this is opportunity cost because the time that I'm spending watching a movie could also be used for doing something different. So what are your considerations on that end? So is it, would you say it's only applicable to, to retail industry or would you also see other domains for recommender systems where this would be applicable and how? That's a very good question. So for it, it's clearly uh, geared towards transactional kind of mm -hmm. marketplaces where it's very clear, you know, uh, what the price is in subscription-based models, like, you know, for media consumption, it's a bit harder. But as you said, you could basically extract maybe what is the willingness to pay for every item by the time spent, you know, uh, and you could also uh, look at on the advertiser side to see exactly. And in this uh, sense, maybe the advertising in some sense is a, is, is a publisher, right? And, and see how much the time spent of the user on their website is valuable as a kind of uh, for monetization strategies, right? So if you replace the, the price with time spent and then multiply the time spent with uh, advertising uh, revenue that you can have per second in some sense, I think you can basically get the transaction back and kind of be able to estimate things also for subscription-based models, assuming that the subscription-based models have an advertising component. In terms of the stakeholders whose welfare we are taking into account here, are there even more stakeholders that might somehow enter the model and whose um, welfare we might want to model in addition? So. I mean, you, you already said it at the very beginning that we have the publishers and um, we have the advertisers on, on the other hand side, and then we have the buyers. So what about the publishers? Could they also enter these economic considerations that led to the modeling here somehow? Um, it's a good question. I don't see why not. So of course, if you add them to the mix in the sense that they are the, the places where the recommendation happens, um, in, in the simplified case, of course, the recommendation happens on the e-commerce website or somehow on the user side in the browser or somewhere. But if you start thinking about the destination uh, as a separate agent, I think, uh, yeah, I think there are interesting things uh, happening there. Uh, I think the simplest thing for, for the publishers, of course, is to be incentive compatible is just to take a, a cut of the transaction and uh, say basically that uh, you know their value is basically facilitating this information transfer from one side to another. I don't see them having uh, their own recommender kind of objective, right? They, they are really just hosting the recommendation. Uh, I think the marketplace is really still between the seller and the buyer. What could happen is that the producers themselves could start coming in and that could also become another player in the market or you have all the marketplaces that aggregate a bunch of retailers or brands together. So I think that that's where you'll see more dynamics. Okay. Okay. And then you have all these fairness constraints and all these kind of other things that uh, people have been worried about. What led us to these economic considerations here was basically the problem of moving from clicks to conversions. Um, so how has that welfare optimized recommender systems research helped you in addressing this issue or moving more to conversion optimization and utility? Um, how did it help there? Uh, so on, on real data, we have not, uh, we're not there yet. I cannot yet say that uh, it's becoming uh, the state of the art in terms of performance on real data. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we have... Uh, 
let's say, more and more realistic simulators for conversion data on which we're expanding the model. But I think that that's the next thing. And I hope that in the next year, we'll be able to do real-world user commercial activity modeling. Um, but as I said, there are some uh, some limitations of the existing model because they, it cannot handle kind of you know heterogeneous uh, interests and uh, you know multi multiple uh, uh, shopping interests in the same time. Once we manage to support that, I'm optimistic that it will lead to some some improvements. That's that's what, you know fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, all the best. So is there already some some follow up to that work? Or I mean, you mentioned you are about to start developing. It's application towards the real world setting or to real transactions or um, how are you following up on this i mean it sounds pretty insightful it sounds also like you could easily extend from it into many different directions and maybe take more economic considerations into account uh, is this something you are you're working on so so the, the first step the, the thing that i'm the most excited about is actually to inform with this model some form of uh, new embedding space uh, which will be mostly content-based uh, so you if you think that Basically, the inner product between the user vector and the product vector becomes somehow the willingness to pay, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the, the maximum utility that this item uh, can provide to this user at this moment in time. Um, you can imagine that basically the, there is a mapping function from the raw information that the user has access to kind of a hidden latent space in which you, you can estimate, estimate its utility. If you think that, you know, I, I as the user, by looking at an item on the web, I can basically compute its utility, our model should be able to do it too. Right, so the model and the user have access to almost the same information, which is something that it's almost like a controlled Instagram. It's something that we never had that before, right? So with full digital e-commerce, we almost know for sure there is no leakage, right? We know what the user knows when when he makes a buying decision. Mm -hmm. I think that's quite powerful. Uh, so it, I think that's the most exciting next project that I have in mind for this is to be able to learn this kind of latent decision space in which the user actually uh, makes the estimation. So if we can create somehow a mapping from the raw text and image data to an internal representation of the product that is kind of monotonic to its value, uh, I think that's already a huge thing, right? Uh, you'll be able to retrieve products that maximize utility for users, and that is uh, pretty great. Yeah, and I guess that's a very good transition to some other work that you are part of, retrieving the products that already exist. But what about creating new products that don't exist yet, but cater to the user's demands even better than those that already exist? So I was very excited by work one year ago that you also provided me with, which was called Warhol, what users want, or you call the model that you came up with there Warhol and you presented it at the Fashion Rexus workshop at last year's Rexus in Amsterdam. And to be honest, I had to think about Star Trek when reading that paper because I was like Jean-Luc Picard standing in front of a replicator and saying what he wants, uh, such that the replicator was generating what I wanted, uh, whether it was some some alcoholic drink or some different beverage yeah. or some 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 food or something like that. But I guess in the fashion Rexus domain, we were rather talking about running shoes or dresses or something like that. This is a much different direction, but still very promising. Can you illustrate to us a bit what 
brought you to the domain of generative recommender systems? Uh, sure. So th this was actually um, kind of a parallel project to the kind of economic record. And uh, it started with a client task that at the, at the time sounded quite crazy, which was, can you help us visualize better what our users want, right? We started thinking about like, how can we do that, right? How can we give more insights about what the users ideally would want, right? Mm -hmm. This turns out to be a quite a reasonable need from the point of view of a retailer, right? The retailer actually has a lot of freedom in, in uh, how to restock, right? Uh, what products to actually uh, get from the brands, right? What the retailer wants to know is really what will his users buy if he had uh, those items, right? So it's quite interesting for both brands and retailers to understand ideally what would the users buy. And uh, to begin with, we started with a very simple text model or keyword model, in which we kind of try to kind of separate the keywords of the products that got bought from the products that didn't get bought. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was very crude, right? So you could find out that some things were trending and some things were not. So that you are somehow able to represent a certain user or some aggregate of some certain user categories with, let's, for example, say a word cloud or a distribution over exactly. certain categories. Which was kind of a discriminative kind of yeah. set of words that would separate the products that ended up being bought from the products that not being bought. So it was kind of a keyword model. Mm -hmm. Gave us a couple of insights, but it was not really, right? You would want, as, as with a NLP model, you would want to move from a one gram or by gram to an n gram, right? To create full sentences out of this, right? So you want it in some sense, like a generative model, right? At that point in time, uh, you know, uh, kind of the first versions of like text to image models started appearing. So it was last year was Dali with their visual transformer. And we we got inspired, right? We, we looked at this and we're like, why can't we not turn the user preference model into a generative model? Like, why can't we actually build something from which we can sample, actually, from which we can sample likely products that the user will buy? That was um, basically our take on DALI. So we took DALI and the visual transformer from DALI and we turned it into a kind of a conditional version of it that was conditioned on the user, mm -hmm. on the user past and the user decisions. And uh, we trained it on, on real user data such that basically the model when prompted with a user vector would basically generate images of products that are likely to be bought by that type of user. Okay, I see. For, for last year, the, the images were quite amazing. Now looking at them, you know, after stable diffusion came, they look uh, And now it's lot, even stable uh, diffusion too, worse. right? Exactly, this, this week, yeah. So yeah, we are actually in the process of actually kind of revamping our model on the stable diffusion model because the, the, the approach still stands. And yeah, we're hoping that the paper will, will be out soon. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think this is quite exciting, especially for uh, one for user insights to, to understand kind of what the users ideally would like and, you know, kind of the gap between what you have in your catalog and what the user might want to buy. And then also for the brands, right? Instead of kind of trying to A-B test your products, your designer, kind of, you know, like in the fast fashion world, you know, they create like limited batches of products. They put them in stores and see what works. You could almost help the design step to be informed by past user shopping uh, data. Mm -hmm. And I think that will become quite powerful. I Definitely want to challenge the usefulness and applicability of these amazing models. Before coming to that, I would like to better understand the data and the modeling part. So you said that you somehow take the user's representation as a prompt to Dolly and Dolly, for example, then comes up uh, with some images and now you could also um, work on on uh, um, Stable Diffusion 2 that just came out or something like that. Can you uh, shed some more light into the details of how this actually works? So also for the people who are not yet that, that much into those newest developments around Diffusion, Clip or Dolly? 
So, um, sure, uh, gladly. Um, first of all, a note on kind of the difference between the, the two architectures, right? So DALI, or at least the original DALI, was kind of a transformer-based model, a visual transformer, mm -hmm. and stable diffusion is a diffusion-based model. Mm -hmm. So the, the architectures are quite different. So we are working on kind of adapting our approach to, to diffusion models. But for visual transformers, what was nice was that basically what you could do is, um, and this is what we added to the original DALI architecture, right? In the original DALI architecture, you would condition the transformer, because we're, we're talking about a kind of a regular transformer, you would condition uh, the transformer with the text input, right? So that would be the text to image part, right? So you would encode the text and then decode to an image, and that would be the, mm -hmm. the visual transformer uh, step. And now what we did actually is that we would encode the user history, which would be also expressed in a clip embedding. So because you can also put the user history in the product space by just product image or text space by, let's say, the simplest thing to do is just to average, the, for example, the products that the user saw in the past. Mm -hmm. So that would become now the condition, right? By averaging, what do you mean in specific there for? So for example, am I taking into account some, some word to vec embeddings for each and every product and then I take the average for them? Yeah, yeah, sorry, maybe I skipped some steps. I'm assuming for, like now quickly it's becoming, uh, you know, Clip is becoming, I would say, kind of the preferred encoder for everybody, I would say, at least in this case. I Basically, I'm assuming that all the products that you have are basically uh, encoded in the Clip space based on their text and image. Mm -hmm. uh, Clip, it's, uh, you know, it also appeared, I think, last year by OpenAI and uh, got open source, which is nice of them. And it allows you to create very good embeddings based on content for, for products. They are very good for retrieval. So the, the, the neighborhoods are quite well uh, estimated and we found them quite useful for recommendation tasks. Okay. okay. So, so now that you have these clip embeddings for items that the user bought or clicked or saved or something like that. You can create a user profile by just taking the average or a weighted average or mm -hmm. some uh, light function uh, of the user uh, shopping activity. So then this way you get basically user vector that is in the same space yeah. with the products, right? Okay. And now instead of passing a text embedding or a clip uh, embedding of the text as, uh, as Dali would, would do, you would actually send the user vector as the prompt. And then you would decode, instead of decoding to image, you would decode to text and to image. Mm -hmm. So you would basically encode the past and decode the future. Um, mm -hmm. So this way, and you could train this actually with a task where basically you take the user, the user past, and actually decode the next product. So we'll say, okay, as a normal next product prediction task, can I predict with DALI, given the past, can I predict the embedding of the next product? Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be our loss, basically. How close do I generate a product to actually the real product that the user saw next? Yeah. So just to summarize, what it works like is uh, you have a user, you have a user's history of, let's, for example, say the K most recent item purchases, then you take yeah. into account or map those items to their corresponding clip embeddings. And then, for example, as a very simple approach, you would take the average across all those embeddings and take those average aggregate as a way to represent the user And this is then, as you mentioned, in the same space as those item embeddings are, because it's somehow constituted from those embeddings. So it will be in the same space. And then this will be the input for Dolly coming up with a visual representation, but let's say with a visual and a uh, textual representation Then you can then take. And that would kind of be the artificially ideal next product for the user. And then you have 
multiple options, I guess. So one way is to say, okay, let's create something that resembles that output. So here product uh, developers or uh, in year 2400, here replicator, please come up with this and present it to the user. Or you could also take it as a seed item to search the item space, right? Yeah, exactly. So that would be more kind of to see if basically could you use it for echo? Like, are you generating items that are reasonably close to real items that you have right now? So it's a one mm -hmm. way to kind of test the performance of the generator. The other one, of course, is to actually generate the items and kind of look at them and look at the kind of the consistency in terms of text and the image. Uh, and you have all the, you know, image kind of image generation, image quality scores mm -hmm. um, that you could do. So yeah, you and this is what we did in the workflow paper. We, we tried them both. Of course, in the end, the best thing to do is to kind of try to take it for actually an applied use case and see if, mm -hmm. let's say, for example, the designers find this useful. And I think, of course, with the newest models, like from Stable Diffusion, this will be more practical than with what we had last year, which now looks uh, a lot sillier than, uh, you know, uh, than we thought. Because, you know, uh, yeah. one year uh, these days, uh, it's it's crazy how, how quickly things have evolved. But yeah, I, I would also say that the speed of development in that area is crazy. So uh, what has been going on in that space since or within the last 12 months or a bit more is, is really tremendous. And it's really hard to even adapt to it so, so quickly. I mean, when you are already saying that you are working on adapting to uh, diffusion models already. So I guess this is uh, pretty fast already. I remember that your client uh, that has been sparking your research there with his request in, please show us what users want. I mean, this was really at the right time when Dolly came out. So it was like a, a match made in heaven that kind of sparked that research. Uh, mm -hmm. However, your client asked you, show us what our users want. And then you came up with that work. And now you are able to show what a single user wants. So how are you aggregating these information to, for example, say, hey, this is a user group and we kind of try to come up with that visual and textual representation of what they want. How do we aggregate it to guide the focus of product developers or whoever uh, towards you should take a look into developing this and that. Exactly. So the, the, the idea would be that actually you would have to segment the, the audiences, the user audiences, mm -hmm. and that, that should be reasonably easy if you have a good latent space. So the mm -hmm. idea would be that you would send the, the user vectors to a clustering algorithm as one of your kind of pre-processing steps. And then, of course, you take the, the big user segments. And of course, with the user, with the client feedback, you could say, which one of these segments are you really interested in developing for? Mm -hmm. uh, this is what we see in terms of traffic and in terms of sales today. Uh, what do you want to, you know, to brainstorm about? Do you want to brainstorm about, you know, teens that are into rock music? Here's kind of their, uh, their uh, segment. This is uh, the vector that represents them. Here's what our model thinks they could be into. So that, that's that's kind of broadly how we, we think about Really interesting directions for recommender systems to spark the development of new products, not only about recommending the next of what is available, but to recommend kind of the next of what is yet unavailable. If I was already triggering it a bit, the applicability and, and, and the usefulness, I guess you already addressed it. So by, by making sure that I cluster my audience beforehand, I can also make sure that what I create will tailor the demand of sufficient amount of users to make sure that the development, the creation cost somehow pays off. But exactly. um, do you also think that this might 
play a role for really individualized products. So, I mean, uh, if we look into manufacturing, we have different ways uh, with 3D printing, additive manufacturing in general, where we could really say, hey, this is a user model now. And I'm again thinking about that replicator from Star Trek, that this might already be applicable or available yet to use for a really individualized product? Um, I mean, why not? And I mean, we have not yet. Well, actually, we, we just published a paper at the New Rips, uh, the creativity workshop at New Rips, mm -hmm. where we actually look into nerve models for like 3D generative applications. So I think one of the kind of intermediary steps that we need to bridge if we assume that, that these kind of models uh, will be successful is actually to move into 3D generation, right? Because a lot of the mm -hmm. applications, downstream applications, design applications, do use 3D meshes for the product design, right? So uh, we also thought that, you know, like an image description of a product is not sufficient. Uh, even better would be to actually create a, a 3D representation of the new product. Uh, so yeah, you could imagine that uh, uh, in applications where basically, um, you know, like laser printing would be something uh, possible, you could have an end-to-end -end full application of a personalization, right? So you could have a user vector that goes into a generative model that then generates a, a mesh that goes to the printer that produces the object. So mm -hmm. we could go all the way there. There are a couple of papers already that kind of link stable diffusion with uh, with 3D generation and with nerves. We are starting to looking uh, to look at that, and I, I think next year we'll we'll have more text to 3D applications. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah, that that definitely is something that we're interested in and uh, might become unusually quickly something real. Um, so yeah, <laughs> maybe next year at the end of next year we'll already see some text to print applications. That's amazing. So maybe Star Trek might not be as far away, at least with regards to replicating from ideas, uh, maybe the warp accelerator might be further from now than those replicators. <laughs> okay, so um, actually also for our listeners, so the paper, its full name is What Users Want, Warhol, a Generative Model for Recommendation, and we will also link it in the show notes. Um, one thing that I was stumbling across when reading that paper was actually the performance comparison that you applied, where you said, okay, now let's take the output of that Warhol model and let's try to use it to find the product recommendations from the available space. And it was somehow showing, I would say, mediocre performance. So there were some yep. uh, models you compared it with, I, I remember RSVD, uh, that performed much better. But on the other hand, you said, okay, this is just the first step. Uh, further steps are about to be done, and then we get to the same or even better levels. What would you think is currently the issue that this model that on the generative side is so fascinating and great makes it worse than established recommender models? That, that's a good way. I would say that the first bottleneck, it's of course the, the generative bottleneck, right? it will generate images of products uh, that are not at all tuned right for performance right they will be somehow marked by the generator uh, predefined knowledge of uh, of the text and the image space right mm -hmm. so the fact that the generator is already pre-trained on a lot of data the question is is that data somehow a good representation of you know 
what are you know good looking shoes for example or mm-hmm. uh, so i think the training data for the generator for the visual generator for the text to, to to image model for example will have a big impact on how the performance would be because of course the encoder afterwards moves it back into the clip space mm-hmm. and then it becomes comparable with all the other products but i would say the decoding to to the image space is tricky right so maybe if you fine tune a, a model on existing shopping data uh, or on only on the shoe space uh, mm-hmm. this model will get more and more aligned with the final task, which is recommendation. Yeah, yeah. But the way we thought about it is, of course, that was that more of a proxy kind of uh, evaluation than the, the real goal. Mm-hmm. Um, if we really wanted to do both, would that be possible? Would we be able to approach a generative recommender system to be as good as the current ones? Yeah, I think we were uh, reasonably far from that. Mm-hmm. Because that will mean that the, the this generative model has to be really good everywhere in some sense, and that's hard in general. Okay, but only reasonably far, not infinitely far from it. Uh, right. Uh, so it was already better than basically best of, like the non-personalized uh, thing. So it was kind of yeah. uh, halfway through. Yeah, I would say that probably the, there are some low-hanging fruits. But yeah, I think that the, there is a bit of way for a generative uh, record to, to become the way to go. Cool. Okay. So yeah, definitely interesting work, uh, worth to check out and also everything that's following up on it. Um, linking this and also the previous paper back to that overall picture, I guess in your presentation, you differentiated into classical recommenders, banded recommenders, econ recommenders, and generative recommenders. And then on another side, you said, yeah, we have that combination of several objectives, that product of click-through rate, conversion rate, and utility. So how do the econ records or even more the generative records address that overall optimization? So so the econ record, if done correctly, if basically if the assumptions about the user kind of user model are correct, in some sense is the right formulation for recommendation general. First of all, as we discussed a bit earlier, it helps a lot with being incentive compatible, right? To define basically on what side is the recommender system deployed, right? Is it on the seller side or on the buyer side? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you, you know for sure that the recommender system is aligned with the right side of the market. And then um, on top of it, uh, then we have the utility piece, which if correctly um, estimated, will allow you ideally to lead to the to the best conversion model possible. Mm-hmm. This, of course, assumes all, that it's a very heavy assumption model where all these things have to be true, right? The user has to be exactly rational. Uh, you have access to exactly to the awareness set that the user has in its mind. Mm-hmm. So all these things have to hold uh, for this to be true. So, of course, the question is, how robust will this be in real scenarios? This is the big question, and this is what we're trying to figure out. But I think in terms of the story, Uh, in the ideal case, this is the way to think about it. Of course, how to adapt it to real data, this is where things get harder. Uh, on the other side, the generative model, it's more about new applications of recommendation, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about basically going for the design step in the product, kind of in the product lifecycle, in the marketing lifecycle even, mm-hmm. right? If you think about machine learning in tech or in marketing, uh, you see machine learning everywhere, but in design, right? So you, <laughs> you have machine in the advertising step or basically in the targeting step when kind of trying to find the product market fit. You have it in the supply yeah. chain management. You you have it- uh, Pricing. Yeah. Uh, in the pricing, well, in the pricing, we're trying to bring it closer to pricing yeah. uh, also, but in the pricing. And then the only place you don't have right now, which is kind of, right now it's an art, it's I think in the design step, like mm-hmm. finding out what really the users want or what else should you, uh, should you develop next time. 
uh, I think it's the least connected to machine learning right now. So with this, we're trying to showcase another way of looking at recommendation that basically uh, makes design in a machine learning application. And I think that's uh, that's the exciting part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, in terms of the excitement, you definitely have me on board. But does this mean, on the other hand, that uh, you're not focusing on classical uh, and banded recommenders anymore? Or is it just like they have other targets and you are still investigating further? I mean, I would make the claim that still banded recommenders are also some some new or interesting stuff many people are still working on. So do you see that there is still much of work ahead of us in terms of banded recommenders? Uh, definitely. Uh, we we are also very still active in that uh, in that piece of literature. So we are still publishing on like uh, using RecordGym and our latest work in that area. It's mostly about banners and uh, kind of combinatorial actions, mm-hmm. trying to basically generalize from one action to actions that are basically sets of items. Because that in in recommender system that's very usual. And for us as an advertising company, we we have a lot of ads that are composite. Uh, so how to model the reward on that kind of banners when the reward is still a click uh, is still an open problem. So we're active in that uh, regard. Also for conversion modeling, we are following another direction, which is online uh, reinforcement learning. We have not published anything on this, but uh, probably next year we'll, we'll have some work. We're, it's more applied for now, but I think once we see it working, probably we'll, we'll publish on it. We move our focus a bit from these really new stuff to the current challenges in real-world recommender systems. What would you point out there to be some of the major challenges that industry faces, but also that research is currently working on? So I think that the, the first I would like to outline what I think was the latest revolution, which I think is quite exciting, is this the development of the two-tower architecture and uh, the K-Nears neighbor kind of based uh, delivery systems where you turn kind of recommendation into a search problem, into a dense space. So I think mm-hmm. this is kind of now propagating through the industry and becoming kind of the de facto architecture. I think now an open question is, do we still need a ranker? Like, do we still need a, a re-ranker? Do we still need a two-stage architecture? Or can we do end-to-end everything into a single stage? Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the reasons we had two-stage was for scalability constraints. And with a two-tower architecture, maybe that is not needed anymore. So maybe a single model can actually be feasible. So I think this is an open question. It will simplify a lot of architectures and a lot of uh, modeling choices. So that's one. The second one is if you still do want to do clicks or some form of attributed conversions, what are good attribution schemes for uh, for conversions? If you don't want to go to full RL, how can you take into account uh, somehow uh, the conversions that happen without clicks and how do you discount for that kind of counterfactual aspect of it? So I think these are kind of, let's say, cheaper fixes that could improve definitely the causal uh, effects of recommendation from the point of view of conversions. And I think the third one would be like diversity. How do you generate good banners, right? Because again, the theory says that you do ArcMax. You cannot do ArcMax every time, right? Mm-hmm. That will be a very boring uh, recommender that will send you every time the same item until you change state as a user. Yeah. So then the question is, how do you add randomness or what is the optimal diversity policy? F- and what does it mean to have optimal diversity mm-hmm. uh, from the view of the reward in generating banners and then sequences of banners. Yeah. So I think that yeah. that's another very important uh, direction. And of course, then there is the fairness, especially for marketplaces. Uh, we don't have it at Crypto because we are not a marketplace. 
But if you have a marketplace and you have a recommender system in the marketplace, I think the fairness mm -hmm. for the marketplace sales is an important question. Yeah, I guess also with regards to the letter one that you mentioned, so fairness, uh, we touched also on this topic in the last episode where we were talking about recommender systems and how they might support human resources or the human resources domain and what the role of fairness that is quite evident there plays there. But there are definitely also many other domains. I guess also in that episode uh, with Christine Bauer, we touched on artist fairness. So it goes through all different kinds of sets of domains and, and recommender systems where fairness plays a role. Since you mentioned that uh, two-tower architecture as the very first point, I'm always surprised how we came up with that name for it. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward because you have one tower that generates a user representation from a raw representation. And on the other side, you have the one that creates the item embedding from the item representation. Because I was actually doing something very similar in my in my master thesis, which is now back then six or, or seven years, where I created a deep learning based recommender system for mobility, where uh, we also came up with something that was really like that. So there was that user tower and the item tower to represent users and items in the same space. And uh, yeah, so just in retrospect, I really found that, yeah, a two tower pattern is really a catchy name for it. Um, but it has just evolved over the last couple of years, I guess. So it's still a pretty new term. But yeah, I was very interested that I said, yeah, uh, you have done a two tower architecture also back then, but <laughs> people just didn't you call didn't it that way. <laughs> I mean, when we talk about personalization in general, so not only in advertising, I would guess that there's also one thing that you like as a user or as a consumer. Can you enlighten us? What is your favorite personalized product that you use? Hmm, that's, a, that's a good one. Hmm. What is the... Well, recently I've been, I've been looking at uh, YouTube for, uh, for game design. I, I got interested in uh, doing game design uh, mm -hmm. with my son. and. Uh, I find the recommender system quite good. So I, I think this is the one that I interact the most daily. Is there any other that surprises me? Say, I would say YouTube probably it's, uh, it's yeah. the recommender system that affects me the most these days. Okay, okay. I can definitely re relate to what you mean. Uh, yeah, it was definitely really nice talking to you in this episode, but uh, I guess there are many more people to come. I hope so. So uh, what would be the person that uh, you would like me to invite to Rexperts? Another good question. I think, well, well, I always enjoy talking to Torsten Joachim, so uh, mm -hmm. definitely uh, I'll be curious to see how he thinks about the future of your recommendation. Ah, great, great. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed the tutorial he gave last year on off-policy evaluation and learning at the Rexos 2021. So it's a really great tutorial. It does a good job in explaining stuff. Yeah, and uh, their their new simulator, I think it's, uh, you know, the Open yes, Bandit pipeline yes, or something like that. Their research uh, group, yeah. They said uh, yeah. Utah Saito, uh, Utah, who's exactly. uh, doing research with him, and they came up with that Open Bandits pipeline. Yeah. Great, Flavian. Uh, time flies by. Uh, it was a very nice sure. discussion with you and also Not getting crazy. into these intense ideas, uh, which people can definitely follow up on by looking at the show notes and listening to this episode. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having you. Okay, thank, uh, thanks for having me. Ben, have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. Please also leave a review on Podchaser. And last but not least, if you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing and make sure not to miss the next episode because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. See you. Goodbye. Goodbye.